0: As you mark song number 50, we certainly do look forward to the time we can continue our song service today and sing that later in our service this morning. As mentioned earlier, we're so thankful and glad, of course, that each one of us are able and permitted by the God of heaven to assemble in the way we are. As we continue this part of our worship, though, the excitement of the songs we've sung, the message of heaven that's been embedded within them, the appreciation of the prayer and the sentiments expressed in it have prepared us to, for the next few moments, think about the protection of marriage. That's the title I chose for the lesson this morning, and for the next few minutes, I would invite you to consider with me some of the marvelous and amazing truths contained in the Word of God to help all of us not only appreciate the integrity and the character of marriage, but also appreciate the bounding limits that can protect it. As we begin that study this morning, these introductory remarks probably are not in any way surprising. We understand how important marriage is. I realize our society, quite frankly, doesn't think so. In so many ways, the approach taken by many, and by the way, that's what seemingly gains the new service attention in the media reports, but you and I realize contained in the Word of God is an incredible significance attached to marriage. It is vitally important for the home. That's the place where children, according to the things of God, can most appropriately be trained and reared. The family is vitally important for the church because, after all, an elder has got to be the husband of one wife. And so if his home life is not as it ought to be, where will the elders of the future generations come from? We all can appreciate just how important marriage is. You'll notice on that particular slide, given the importance of marriage, it's not the slightest bit surprising that it is marriage to which Satan has so often turned his attention in an attempt to discredit it, in an attempt to even destroy it, in an attempt to cause it to have less than the ideal appreciation found in the Word of God. And he has succeeded in so many ways. I hope at least for the next few moments this morning, you and I can appreciate the opposite side of that coin, namely the protection found in the Word of God for this thing, this beautiful thing known as marriage. You'll notice at the very bottom of that slide... I would submit that in the Word of God, there are several particular frameworks that God has put in place that serve as a powerful protection. We're going to look at several of those this morning. But maybe to at least prompt us to think about the significance of it, first, some statistics that are alarming, but probably not too surprising. I know that there are many statistics that could be listed and discussed and put before us. Statistics that would paint a rather bleak picture of marriage. And this one does too, I admit. But maybe from a perspective that is concerning a subject that you and I don't think about that often. Look at this one, if you would, with me. In 1991, a book was published by Patterson and Kim. That's the name of two gentlemen. And as they published this book, it was such that they, in fact, made a rather detailed polling of a widespread consideration of the American public. In that book, the following statistics appeared. A full 31% of those polled claimed that they had had an affair. And not only that, 62% of those polled claimed there's nothing wrong with an affair. They, in fact, asserted that this particular matter of marital infidelity, this matter of characterizing the matter of having an affair, at least in their mind there was nothing wrong with it. Can't we see what Satan has at least succeeded in the mind of many if there is that many people who feel that way? Might I submit that you and I would do well to revisit the integrity and the basic foundational framework of the church, or rather as marriage as the Bible presents it. Let us look further on that slide. We know the divorce rate in our land continues to hover at near 50%. Some years it seems to be a bit over 50, some years a bit less than 50. But in light of all of those, it still goes without saying that Satan's having success in harming the family, harming public appreciation of marriage. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, I've chosen to fit into this a particular term, a word that we often hear in light of other avenues of life. What about the word fidelity? That word is in many ways such a profound word, a powerful word, a very telling word It basically means this, it's the quality or state of being faithful. And I would submit to you, and we'd all readily agree, that the matter of fidelity is so vital in the Word of God. God wants us to have fidelity in regard to the church. He wants us to have fidelity, that is faithfulness, in regard to our service to Him. But He wants us to have fidelity in light of our marriages as well. No wonder then, as we consider the bottom statement, We live in a land where that matter of fidelity is so often, at the very least, not a matter of great significance. Look for things otherwise. Consider other matters. Faithfulness in the mind of many is something you can compromise if you want to. Well, apparently in the book of God, that's not so. The first major point of our lesson this morning... The Word of God erects an incredible array of warnings concerning the very subject of fidelity in marriage. The very subject you and I would probably readily term adultery. Why don't we begin like this? You and I know very well that marriage is a fundamental change in life. It is a powerful and profound decision. And quite frankly, once a person enters marriage, it can never be undone in terms of going back fully to the way it was before. You've made a promise and a vow before God and others. And that vow, God, in fact, erects and makes statements like this. What God hath joined together, let not man put us under. That statement in Matthew nineteen six rings in our ears with thoroughness, completeness, and power. But it does so in light of these appreciations. It's not only in the New Testament, is it? As far back as Exodus chapter 20, in fact, we could even have mentioned some other ones. But there was such plainness. Wasn't it true that God said the seventh of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, you and I often appreciate, I'm sure, that here were people living thousands of years ago. Probably many would call them uncivilized, but that's not so. There were many who might call them barbarous, but that's not so either. These were individuals who had been called out of Egyptian bondage, and as they began their appreciation of becoming the individuals and the nation God would have them to be, God put an erected framework protecting marriage. Don't you commit adultery. Not only that, you'll notice the very next passage in Leviticus 20 is one that places punishment upon those that did succumb to that. The punishment went like this. The man who was guilty of adultery as well as the woman with whom he committed it, both were to be put to death. Both were to be put to death. That was a capital offense. How serious was God about protecting the ordination of marriage? Wasn't he extraordinarily serious about it? You'll notice as we come to Hebrews 13 4, the lesson text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. Marriage is honorable in all. And the first part of that verse has a place in so many marriage ceremonies. It is an honorable estate. May we never forget the way the verse ends. Whoremongers, that is to say, fornicators, and adulterers, God will judge. Those are not honorable. They are not favorable to God. They're not pleasing to Him. It's a state of abomination. It's a state of absolute condemnation in light of decree from the God of heaven. As if that wasn't enough. We might now appreciate the following. Many times that, that crime, if you please, that spiritual crime of adultery is highlighted before us in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11 And again, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, we have on those occasions a listing of those who will not go to heaven, those who are lost, and on top of nearly both lists is adulterers. May I say again, consider what Satan is doing. In our land, he's trying to undermine marriage. You can have affairs if you want to, Satan says, but God says that is not so. God says marriage is this commitment, this vow, and the fidelity is demanded. And He says those guilty of this will lose their soul. Let's read further. You'll notice that there has been such a grave danger in our land today. And sometimes even making its way into the inroads of the blessed church of our Savior. In Romans 13, verses 8 and following, as Paul gave a rehearsal of the features concerning what is like to serve God, he quotes a number of the Old Testament Ten Commandments, and among them, thou shalt not commit adultery. This is still as needful and as vital today as it ever was. May I again say that Satan is trying his best to bring doubts and uncertainty and questioning character in the minds of many relative to marriage. When the Word of God says these warnings must be embedded in our hearts and the hearts of our youngsters so that when it comes time for them to think about marriage, they'll understand what it's all about. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, throughout the Word of God, Satan has tried on many occasions and he often had success I found it interesting to consider the timing of our study in the Bible class this morning. In Numbers chapter 25, Satan here, in fact, not only tried, but had a great deal of success in causing in the mind of the Israelites a questioning consideration concerning fidelity to marriage. They committed whoredom with the daughters of the Moabites and with the Midianite women. Satan, through Balaam, was behind it. Today, how often again is Satan behind those things that bring questioning, consideration, and and those features that undermine the strength and power of marriage? One of the last thoughts on that slide, it would seem to me would be this. You and I must never, ever be ignorant of his devices. That is Satan's devices. For again, it is he who knows what the end of this is. And you and I, of course... The human family often learns it so much later. We must know what Satan's up to. He doesn't want your marriage and mine to be this powerful bastion of strength that the Bible says it can be. He doesn't want it to be the paradise on earth that God says it should be. He wants it to be a matter that's filled with misery and other kinds of matters such that it is at least not ideal. What additional things in terms of all this does the Bible reveal? We've learned that God's warnings are presented so clearly. What other things help us appreciate the greatness of marriage and how serious God takes it? How do you and I have the kind of marriage God would have us to be? How do we have the kind of marriage that God would want us to appreciate? I think as we're about to see, the very first word of wisdom must be this. Namely, to be a faithful Christian. If I'm to be the best husband, if a lady is to be the best wife that she can be, it has to begin here. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord issued a tremendous invitation. Everyone who's burdened and everyone who feels the weight of matters around them, come to me. Well, surely that would include considerations of a desirity of ideal, idealness in marriage. Come to me, he said. And when we come to him, we begin to notice this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 30. Near the close of that opening chapter in the Corinthian letter Paul gave instruction relative to an amazing viewpoint, a great perspective. You may recall that he had just highlighted the fact that when individuals think that they themselves are mighty or knowledgeable or wise, they have missed the point. For even man's greatness is less than the power of God. Even man at his best is less than the foolishness of God. No flesh should glory in his sight. And did you notice what He's given us? He's given us wisdom. I think that has much to say about proper marriage, don't you? To know with wisdom how to interact, how to behave, what to in fact do and how to do it. He also mentions righteousness. We, uh, of course, look with such grandeur at what is right. And yet that's what righteousness involves. Furthermore, there is sanctification that we have available from God. That means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated for particular service. A husband and wife ought to understand that. Finally, there's redemption. Saved from sin. Bound for heaven. Enjoying all the spiritual blessings that we have available here when a husband and a wife can enjoy the mutual union in which they each enjoy all four of them. And they encourage one another in those ways. That is a rich and blessed union to be sure. In addition to that, notice, here are two people who serve the Master. They don't serve their self. They don't serve the devil. They are each committed to the God of heaven and they serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in selflessness and in humble devotion to every commandment the God of heaven has given, they happily acquiesce to it. Notice in Galatians 3, 26 and following. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Think about a husband and a wife who themselves appreciate that great change wrought in them when they became Christians. They're dead to this world. They're servants of righteousness, Romans six eighteen. Not only that. You notice they are motivated by, above all things, a love for God. Didn't Jesus Himself say in response to the greatest of the commandments, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind? Mark 12, verse 30. As they then love one another, they, of course, appreciate it falls beneath the umbrella of their love for God. That love leads us to note the next one they genuinely do love each other. That's what motivated them in light of their marriage. They didn't get married just to satisfy the neighbors or just because it's what others thought. They married because they loved one another and wanted to spend the rest of their days together. Paul did say, didn't he, in Ephesians 5, 23 and following, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Every husband the sound of my voice feels a powerful obligation relative to a verse like that one, to love our wife, and to do so in light of the degree and character and exposition of the love that Christ had for the church. But of course, wives are told to love their husbands in Titus 2 verse 4. Thus, we see this mutual consideration in which they each share this marvelous character of love for each other, We know the world seems so often to be filled with hatred and animosity, ugliness, ill feelings, but yet a man and his wife, that genuine selfless love they have one for another, what a joy it is to come home to that. What a joy it is to appreciate all that that signifies and what it means. You'll notice that that love is described in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and following, and though we won't look at all of the attributes of it, you remember what some of them are. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. It does not boast of itself. It bears all things. When the rocky times come, and every marriage is going to deal with them because of the difficulties of this life, There are deaths and there are other kind of circumstances. Terrible atrocities can occur to those that we love. Love bears all things. There is that considered union in which these two can lean upon one another for a source of encouragement, edification, and strength. Not only that, not only does love bear all things, it believes all things. It endures all things and it hopes all things. That love leads us to notice. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And if that should be descriptive of general Christian character, shouldn't it be descriptive of a Christian mate, husband and wife? To be kind and tender-hearted, to be forgiving and understanding. One of the last thoughts on that slide does help us see that even the manifestation of God's golden rule has much to say about that, doesn't it? To treat others the way you want them to treat you. Sometimes we see pictures or articles or presentations in which it's easy to see in almost a moment's notice that the marriage that that man and woman have isn't what it ought to be. They talk to each other in ways that clearly do not manifest kindness. They exhibit things that clearly do not manifest the integrity of these descriptions. Notice again what Satan often is doing, undermining the sanctity and beauty and blessedness of marriage. Some more perhaps should be said about that. Remember our lesson involved protecting marriage. So we've already learned some basic practical things that you and I should ever keep in mind. I've got to be a faithful Christian if I'm going to be the best husband or best wife I can be. But in addition to that, the heart has to come before us next. The protection of marriage. May I submit to you that the condition, the characteristic of the heart, will be a vitally significant and important matter Why don't we develop that like this? You and I must keep our heart pure. I realize with the internet and things like we have it today, the television, so many things can eat away at one's conscience concerning integrity, even in relation to marriage. And many have fallen into that trap throughout the decades past. Maybe you've even known of individuals in the church. Maybe he was a deacon or maybe that man was an elder. Maybe even that other man was a preacher. And yet somehow over the course of time, he committed adultery. He didn't respect or at least recognize and follow with obedience the integrity and the things. Something happened to his heart or her heart at some point. Keep the heart pure. You and I need to ever consider the seriousness of that. Keep thy heart with all diligence, the Psalm, the, the writer of Proverbs told us, because out of it are the issues of life. You and I need to be very serious about keeping things pure in the way we think, as it relates to matters as we're about to see. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are all kinds of images available to us on the television. Advertisements, internet sites. You and I, sometimes I fear we fail to appreciate it, but sometimes read some of the articles available from Christian authors that describe the rampant pornography in our land. People who under the cover of closet in the darkness of night, they're addicted to this. And so they look at images hour after hour on the computer screen, lusting after what they see. May you and I realize, got to keep our heart pure. You'll notice in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Paul wrote to that young son in the faith of his, Timothy, Timothy, flee youthful lust and keep your heart pure. You and I must do that too. Because didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who is it that will see God? It starts with those pure in heart. As we develop that, you'll notice then the following you and I then need to seriously understand, don't ever, ever, ever allow yourself to look with stimulation upon a member of the opposite sex. Husbands, wives, don't do that. We've got to be faithful to our husband, to our wife, and therefore keep a close guard on the purity of the heart. I would ask you to notice in Matthew 5:28 what Jesus said in light of that. Now remember, Jesus lived on this earth some 2,000 years ago. People dressed a lot differently then, but He nonetheless said, that man that looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus, what has He committed? The Lord said adultery. There was a kind, a type of adultery, even without the physical manifestation itself, that that man had already committed. And that's not good. You notice again how harmful that is to that man's marriage. Let's look further. Pornography, as you and I listed it a moment ago, is so easily available. And yet the Bible condemns it. In Revelation 22, the last chapter in God's book, one last time we have a reminder of the sinfulness of this and the nature of what it ultimately will cause, namely, to lose our souls. The seriousness of all of that maybe brings us to note, didn't Jesus teach adultery starts in the heart? That's where it originates. It starts as that lustful consideration in the man and the woman's mind, and as such, it ultimately manifests itself in a physical act. But it began in the heart. Jesus said all evil in terms of thefts or murders or wickedness or adulteries, they all start there. We've got to keep our heart pure. And that purity perhaps leads us to note the following. As husbands and as wives, we must direct our attention to our spouse. Do so with an appreciation of this special one who has joined his or her life with yours. As such, Proverbs 5.15 told us this. There is a dire set of warnings in Proverbs chapters 5 through 7. It is warnings about adultery. It's warnings about what happens and what takes place in that sense. And on that occasion, he very clearly taught with the magnificence of God's wisdom, follow the waters of your own cistern. That's an interesting phraseology. In the context, it's not hard to understand what it means. There are forbidden waters in other places. Husbands, follow the waters of your own wife. All of us are then taught so clearly to recognize the terribleness associated with adultery. But you'll notice the devil does not want us to to sense the danger. In First Corinthians 15 33, we're taught to watch with care our companionships. All of us need to be mindful. There are those who do not have your and my spiritual best interest at heart. A co-worker at the office or a neighbor or perhaps one of the parents of one of the friends of your children. Sometimes they don't always have Christian ideas in mind, and they often may have their sights set on just more than an innocent friendship. Therefore, be very cautious to all of us. Husband, show you the attention you should to your wife, not to somebody else's wife. And wives, show the attention you should to your husband, not somebody else's husband. No wonder one of the last thoughts on that slide would maybe lead us to ask, what about some practical matters that could help us along that line to protect our marriages and to make sure that they are as strong and as fortified as they could be? That's the purpose of this last slide. Because I thought it wise to use again what the Bible has to say and remind us about some of these tactics that Satan uses. And I say that with with, with careful deliberation. We've learned earlier Satan does not want strong marriages. He doesn't. He wants weak marriages at best and he'd prefer to destroy them if he can. How do you and I maintain the strength and the fidelity? Well, first of all, note here. There are certain tactics that Satan's angels will use in their attacks upon you and me. Flattery is one of them. Again, this man, though, a fine Christian man he is, some association, maybe at work, maybe in community, maybe elsewhere, she starts to flatter him. She states to him and just encourages him in such remarkable ways about the nature of what he is and what he's capable of. And if you're not careful, after, oh, a few weeks or months of that kind of flattery, he has established a kind of connection with her. Now, nothing has developed yet but how easily it could. Flattery can be so dangerous. May you and I realize that that grass that looks so green on the other side of the fence is not a grass to be desired. For after all, you don't understand what all goes with that, as we're about to see shortly. Not only flattery. Notice appearance. I use this because the writer in Proverbs did it. In Proverbs 7, verse number 10, mention is made as a powerful warning about the attire of an harlot. There are women that dress like prostitutes. They really do. And there are men who also dress inappropriately. And as the gaze of the opposite sex goes toward her or goes toward him, if that's allowed to dwell on the mind for a little while, for maybe a few weeks or perhaps even months, something might develop that ought not do it. So we must be careful of appearance. And you and I must appreciate that whether it be flattery or whether it be that appearance, that ungodly kind of dress in which one exposes too much. Look at the third one, the matter of denial. I say that because how pertinent it is. Maybe we've known individuals who themselves have fallen into this trap of adultery and a marriage was, in fact, so greatly harmed. But think about what happened in those moments, those times leading up to it. Something developed with a member of the opposite sex and something ultimately came to happen. No doubt there was a great deal of thought about pleasure and about the thought of how exciting, how fun this is, maybe even the secretive nature of it but there was never much thought about its consequences. I would ask that you and I think about the consequences for a moment. Think about the aftermath of it. Here, adultery has been committed. What's going to happen when you have to tell that to your wife? Think about the tears streaming down her face when she loved and trusted you for years and you fathered her children, and then you committed adultery against her. Or on the other hand, think about looking into the loving eyes of your son or daughter and trying to explain to them that I went out on your mother. Think about how much hurt to the heart that would bring. You see, often we tend to deny it, and the devil never wants us to think about that. He never wants us to think about the aftermath. He wants you to think about the moments leading up to it and what pleasures of sin might be characteristic of the moment. But may we never forget that the wages of sin is death. And may we never forget that the way of the transgressor is hard, Proverbs 13, 15. Let's look even further. The lack of attention. In our families, may we as husbands give our wives the attention, the affection that God's book says we should direct her way. And wives, may you direct to your husband the attention the Bible says that you should direct his way. May thus husbands and wives never need to go looking for affection anywhere else because they have it at home, right where God says it needs to be. In light of that, you might appreciate that we as husbands then can do some things. Tell your wife every day you love her. Don't ever let a day pass where she doesn't hear you say it. Wives, tell your husband every day you love him. Don't ever let a day pass where he does not hear you say it. Let that be a reinforced truth such that there's never a question concerning it and there's never a matter whereby it should be at least wondered about. Not only that, pray for your spouse. The Bible encourages us to pray for the lost, to pray for the sick, to pray for kings and for those in authority. Does it not stand to reason we should pray for our spouse? Thank God for her. Thank God for him that that special person has chosen to unite, to be one flesh with you, and you, the two of you can, in fact, proceed through life bound for heaven. Pray for your spouse. That kind of prayer maybe leads us to notice, be encouraging of them. Let them know you support them. In the Bible, we're told to be encouraging of other church members. Shouldn't that include our spouse? 1 Thessalonians 5.11. As you encourage them, let them know that they're important to you. In all those ways, the last statement on that slide is this one. Marriage is honorable. The lesson texts speak such volumes. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. We've studied this morning about erecting these powerful considerations concerning keeping marriage as God would have it to be and never allow those tactics of the devil to cause cracks in it or to undermine it. I hope we'll all be stronger in relation to those ideas. Because one more time isn't it sad to think about adultery, what it causes and what it brings and God's sentence upon it. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso that marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery, Matthew 19:9. Adultery is so serious that one guilty of it can never have God's blessing for divorce. Never have God's blessing for remarriage. Maybe in light of those things, we've reached the point of extending an invitation. Not as it relates to any one sin only, but rather to any consideration of life. If you find yourself separated from God this morning, realize the Son of God died on a cross, shedding His sinless, guiltless Innocent blood that you could be saved. Don't turn your back upon it. If this very morning you have never rendered initial obedience to the gospel, why not today? Why not today? The baptismal waters behind me are prepared and ready. You, in just a matter of moments, could be immersed into Christ. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. If you have become a faithful Christian, though, and you have wandered away from the fold of faithfulness, any number of sins, perhaps... Infidelity in attendance of the services, infidelity in a number of other services to the Master have brought problems and difficulties to your life. And you'd like the prayers of brethren. We'd be delighted to pray to God for you. Would you not let us know the way we could assist or help today? If we could do that, this moment is a convenient one. Why not come now? For together we stand and while we sing.